Hi there. How you doing? It's good to see you. Hey, I don't know if you, well, let me say it this way. Uh, you ever been lied to? And, and I don't mean like people lie to you like, you know, I mean people like they have good intentions, but they just tell you something that's not true and they even think it's true, but it's not true. Let me give you an example. Like uh, people who say things like, you know, you got to wait 20 minutes after you eat lunch before you go in the water. Like those kind of people, uh, you know, like I was, uh, how many of you were told that you were told that as a kid, like, like, you know, that's not true, right? I was told as a kid, if you go in the water at like w- at before 20 minutes, you will die. I was terrified to go in the water. In fact, and, and I, you know, these things like you find out they're not true, but they kind of stick with you. You ever noticed that? I mean, they stuck with me. Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> I remember my wife and I were staying at this resort and this place had one of those, um, it had the. It was like this giant pool that this resort had, and it had one of those bars that uh, was kind of like halfway in the water, and then you could like eat your lunch or eat stuff or drink in the pool itself. And so I'm getting out of the pool and I'm watching a few people eat a sandwich in the water, and my first thought was, "Wow, those people are going to die." That's the first thing I thought, right? And, and uh, but there's people that you know, like we get told things like that, like you know, always wear clean underwear just in case you get into an accident. Like, number one, when did that ever become optional uh, in life? Like, clean, dirty, I guess I'll go clean. Uh, And so, but the second thing is, if you get into an accident, is that really the thing that's going to matter? Thirdly, depending on the accident, will they be clean for that long? So these are the things I think about. Uh, And then, you know, then you become a parent. Oh, boy. Uh, You become a parent and everybody's got their words of advice uh, for you. And, uh, you know, like people tell you things and most of the time it's things that that their parents or someone else told them that they've believed, but they kind of pass them on to you, even though it's like just ridiculous. Uh, You know, my family's Cuban, so we have all these things that we tell uh, each other and other people uh, that just like like, it's just not true. Uh, You know, like you have a baby like, you know, you got to shave that baby's head so the hair grows in nice and thick. Right. You know, that's not true. You know how I know that? Because my mom shaved my head twice. It isn't working for me. All right? And, uh, you know, now here's the the thing that I find funny, though. We become Christians, and we have our own set of phrases that we tell people. Things that aren't true, but sound nice. But we just kind of tell them, you know, we say this. You know, there's no safer place to be than in the center of God's will. Oh, that sounds, yeah, that sounds good. Totally not true, but that sounds really good. Right. Because, we'll, you know, like uh, like I wish someone would tell Joseph that. Right. You know, Joseph, uh, his brothers sold him into slavery uh, and then you know he got thrown in the pit, sold into slavery. He got falsely accused of rape. Then he got thrown into prison uh, for, you know, a couple of years. Then he was forgotten. And then 13 years after all of this, he kind of rises to power and is, you know, the safest place to be. Like, was that, was that before or after my jail sentence? Was that, like, that, that little phrase going to kick in? Um, people tell the, I'd love someone to tell the Apostle Paul that. Uh, you know, it's like whenever Paul went somewhere, it was either a revival or a riot that broke out, and you weren't really sure which way it was going to go. Sometimes both happened. But I love, uh, there's this passage in 2 Corinthians. It's not in your notes, but if you just write in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul starts writing down all the crazy stuff that's happened to him. Uh, and so l- listen to what he says. I-, I-, I wrote it down. He says, five different times, the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with wa- rods. Once I was stoned. 
that would be the type with rocks, not the other kind. Um, and uh, <laughs> three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a whole day and night adrift at sea, traveled on many long journeys. Faced de- I faced danger from rivers and from robbers. Faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from Gentiles. I faced dangers in cities, deserts, and the seas. Faced dangers from men who claim to be Christians and are not. I've worked long and hard, endured many sleepless nights. I've been hungry, thirsty, have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides this, the daily burden and concern for all the churches. Right, as I read the Bible, I find the will of God to be a very dangerous place. It's the best place, but it's not a safe place. But it's just things that we tell people. There's just, it's, it's like this kind of knowledge that we share, but it's not real knowledge. It's not experiential knowledge. It's just stuff that we share. What I want to do in the last few verses, this is the closing message of a series that we started three and a half months ago uh, called Real. And uh, we've been working our way through the book of First John. Now, if I can ask this, how many of you were here at the very first study of First John? If I can ask you that, look at that. Great, great. So glad you're here. pardon me, but now we're bringing it to a close. And the way that John is going to close this series is by showing us, laying out for us four real truths. Four real truths that will transform us. They'll transform our understanding with God. They'll transform our relationships with other people and with Him. They'll give us peace, courage. uh, Because one of the problems that we face in the church today is that we don't know truth. And the lack of truth is hurting us. It hurts our relationships with people because we misunderstand their intentions. And we walk around defeated because we don't know the victory that we have in Christ. It hurts our relationship with God because we don't really know who God is. We've just been given these ideas about who God is. And so we've been told kind of these half-truths. We've embraced partial truths. And so here's what John does. He gives us these four truths that can just absolutely transform us, that can galvanize our faith and really move us forward if we embrace them. So I'm going to invite you to turn, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, open with me to 1 John chapter 5, which is where we're going to be. We're going to conclude this book today. We're going to start in verse 6, and here's what he says. He says, this is he, speaking of Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And not, by wa- not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, <clears throat> here's the first thing that I want to tell you. I want to share with you about real knowledge, real things, real understandings that we can have. And that is that you can know what God is like. You see, so many of us, and this is not just true of those who aren't Christians, but this is true of those of us who are Christians. We can walk around with a misunderstanding of who God is. We can walk around not really knowing who the Lord is. And so we live our lives not based on a knowledge of God, but based on a misunderstanding of who God is. And see... When we really know who God is, when we really know how God works, it will change the way we respond. It will change the way that we live. Now, some of you know, uh, let me explain it this way. Some of you know that I'm a musician and uh, my band, uh, we put out a couple of albums like 800 years ago. Um, And, well, when my wife and I were getting married, 
I've told this story before. My wife says I tell it too much. Um, but it, it was a painful moment in my life. Uh, when, when my wife and I were getting, not the getting married part. Uh, <laughs> she's listening to these messages. Uh, uh, when my wife and I were getting married, I sold my 1983 black Gibson Les Paul standard um, for the, and I, and I sold it, took the money, and used it as a security deposit for our first apartment. It was a traumatic moment in my life. Um, you know, I was a musician all my life. I mean, this was like the dream guitar for me. And, um, you know, my wife has heard me tell this story, which she thinks is too many times. And so when she hears it, this is basically what she says. She says, you sold a guitar, you got me, get over it. And uh, it's not that easy. And um, anyway, now the cool thing is, after I wrote my first book, um, my wife took the royalties that I had made, some of the royalties I'd made on my first book, and she bought me a 1995 black Gibson Les Paul standard for our 10th anniversary. Uh, ve- yeah, it really was nice. It's a beautiful guitar. Outside of the birth of my children, it was the happiest moment of my life. Um, and uh, now, I keep my guitars, uh, uh, you know, I have a couple of guitars, I have a bass, uh, my amp, I keep everything out in the living room, uh, which I'm not really sure how my wife feels about that. Um, but I, I, my whole thing is I don't want to keep all my instruments away from my kids. I want my kids to grow up around instruments. My hope is, is that they'll learn to play guitar or, or play whatever instrument they want, but that they're around musical instruments and that they're uh, interested in them. And so, um, plus we do concerts all the time, and, I, you know, I've told you about that. And uh, so, anyway, it was about a year ago or so that Mia and Xander were playing, and they knocked over my black Gibson Les Paul standard, um, and they broke one of the machine heads. If you don't know what a machine head is, the machine heads are the knobs that make the strings tighter or looser. And uh, they broke that. And so my wife sees it and she says, oh boy, Bobby's going to be upset about this. And Mia says to her, and she was, you know, just before she turned five, and she says, oh, no, he won't. Uh, Mommy, Bobby's going to say this. He's going to say, it's okay. I know it was an accident. And just like that, like, first of all, do I even talk like that? But my kids think I have like this, you know, really, you know, deep, uh, you know, like I I sound like the Incredible Hulk or something, you know. Uh, So uh, anyway, the uh, so I get home and I see my guitar broken and I didn't exactly say that's okay. I know it was an accident. I didn't yell because I don't, we don't yell in our home, but I started asking some more questions and I did get upset. Like, you know, what happened here? What? You got to take care of things. And anyway, Mia gets very upset. She starts to cry. And then she says, she says, well, Bob, you know, Carrie says, Bob, she expected you not to get upset. She expected you to say, it's okay. I thought it was an accident. And I said, oh, oh all right. But you know, the, but you know, there's, there's a broken guitar here. And what are we going to do? But anyway, she's like, I understand that. But you know, she's upset because she said, I know Poppy and I know he's not going to get mad. And then you came home and you got kind of mad. And, um, and, and so anyway, so I said, all right, I'll go talk to her. So I sit on the, she's on her sitting like crying on her bed and whatever. So I sit on the bed and I say, Mia, can I tell you something? And she says, yes. And I said, it's okay. I know it was an accident. And, uh, and she starts to laugh and I, and then we had a great conversation about taking care of things, especially my things. And, um, and now <laughs> here's what happens. And here's the thing that happens. Uh, we have this same challenge with God is that if we have not read the Bible, if we have not walked with God for very long, then we have a very different view about who God is in, in contrast to what the Bible says about God. You see, John opens this section of 1 John. 
this final section of the book, talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit bearing witness. Talking about Jesus, his incarnation, as a witness. A witness of what? A witness of God's love for us and a witness of God's desire to be involved in our lives because that's what a loving father does. Now, I recognize that it's still fairly early and some of you have not eaten lunch, but I want to ask a fairly deep question and I want to answer it in the time that we have together, okay? So, um, you know, so, so here's, here's the thing I want us to think about. Why did God create the universe? And you're like, well, it's way too early for that. Uh, and I, I recognize that. My kids usually will ask me the deep questions of the universe, like, one minute before they're supposed to go to sleep. You know, okay, mama, I love you. Good night. Okay, papi, how does God speak to us? Like, good, okay, I can't say good night. Here we go. Now, you know, all right, so anyway, that's how, that, that was the last question from a couple nights ago. Um, so, you know, why did God create the universe? This is so huge because it's, it's important because it will give us an understanding of who God is. And if we don't understand this correctly, here's what will happen. We will have a misunderstanding of God, and it will not just affect how we understand God. It will affect how we live our lives. Here's what I mean. Um, a lot of people think, well, why did God create everything? Well, God created the universe because he was lonely. And God needed people to, you know, just somebody to hang out with. And, uh, and, and now, and, but listen, that's why, you know, God needed somebody to love Somebody to love him. And, you know, because when we love him, God kind of feels better about himself. And, and that sort, that's kind of, that's the idea that many people walk around thinking. Is that God was lonely somehow. Do you know nothing could be further from the truth? God was lonely. Listen, for all eternity, God has existed in a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. And you're trying to tell me that fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit somehow hanging out with us is better? I'm sorry to hurt your self-esteem. But... Don't tell me that hanging out with us I was going to hang out with the Holy Spirit today. But, Bob, you just seem so cool. Uh, no, that listen, like God's slumming it when he hangs out with us. OK, like f- fellowship with the Father, Son and Spirit is perfect fellowship. It's perfect relationship. And so now here's the thing that's important to understand. If loneliness is the reason that God created everything then the chief reason for creation is that there was a deficiency that God had that needed to be filled. But see, he creates the world, if this is what we believe, God was lonely, then he creates the world because he needed something from us. However, if God exists in this perfect trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit that we read in these verses, then he doesn't need anything. He lives in perfect love, in perfect community, in perfect relationship. And so the reason that he creates is not need. The reason that he creates is out of love. Because if the Trinity, if all three persons of the Trinity are involved, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, where we read in Genesis that it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Father is the one working. And it says in verse 2 of Genesis 1 that the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and the Spirit of God is involved in creation. And then we learn in John chapter 1 that it was the Word of God, Jesus, that spoke and made everything into existence where it says in verse 3 that in God said, let there be light, and light was. And so now the issue becomes, and here's why this is so huge for us, because if God needed someone to love, and he created the universe to have someone to love. Then the basis of everything that was created was power. And love flows later. However, what if the opposite is true? What if Father, Son, and Spirit dwell together in perfect community, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship? 
And now they create, but they create out of love. And the basis of everything is created out of love. And the only way that we really understand God and we really understand the universe and we really understand life and we really understand each other is when we come from the position that God created us because he is love. That's what we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, that God is love. It doesn't mean that God is loving and he's real nice, but instead it's simply it, it, it's stating a reality of who God is. That for all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been loving each other. And the outflow of that is the creation of this world. And the outflow of that is the creation of the universe. And that instead of power being the basis for everything, love is the basis for everything. And the only way that life makes sense and Um, the world makes sense and our relationships make sense or anything makes sense is when we filter it through the eyes of a God who created everything out of love and is the very definition, picture, and epitome of what love really is. And this, my friends, is why. It's why when we have this idea of God who's vengeful, this idea of God who is spiteful, This idea of God is, oh, I don't want to get out of line because, man, God is just waiting for the right moment to wipe me out. You're not going to walk in freedom. You're not going to walk in love. You're not going to walk in everything that God has for you. Why? Because we have a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. But it's only that we, when we embrace this idea that God is love, created everything out of love, and the only way we understand the world is through love, that life really begins to make sense. And that's why this is so important for us to understand that if we're really going to know God and we're really going to walk with God, we've got we've to have real knowledge and know who God really is. And that's just where he begins. He moves on in verse 9. Look at what he says. He says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of the Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And then verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Here's the second thing I want to tell you about real knowledge, what we can really know. The second thing is that you can know that you're saved by Jesus. You can know that. You can know that. Um, Let me explain it this way. The thing that he talks about in this is this whole idea of a witness. That if we believe the witness of men, someone tells us what happened and we believe that. Two or three people corroborate that. We would say, hey, that really happened based on the testimony, based on the witness of these people. That if we will believe the witness of men, he's saying, then the witness of God is even greater. And so what, if that's the witness, then what is it that God is saying? And, and this is what he says in verse 11, that God has given us eternal life. And in the whole point of him writing, he says, he gives us the thesis for 1 John. He says, these things I've written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And that's what, that's what a witness does. They share what they have seen and what they've heard. Uh, when I was 13, I was going to visit my dad in, uh, in Boston. And my dad, uh, we found out that my uncle, Alberto, uh, had a spare ticket that he wasn't going to use. And so 
he said, hey, Robert, I'll give you my spare ticket um, because I think he, had, he was going to drive back or something. He says, but I'm leaving this day. And this was, by the way, this is, it was like a different world back then, like, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, where all you had, you know, you didn't need like ID you could get on a plane and bring whatever you wanted, you know, like, so you could go, you didn't have to, use your name on the ticket, is it spelled exactly the same way, you grew a mustache since this picture, it's not good, you know, it was totally different, I mean, you could just do whatever you want, all those fireworks, yeah, they're on my carry-on, who cares, you know, and bring the rifles too, um, you know, I mean, it was just different back then, um, and so I get on the plane, I show my ticket, and I don't have an ID, so I just get on the plane. Who are you? My name is Alberto Franquist, and I'm getting on the plane. And, uh, and I was kind of weird about it because I didn't, you know, I felt kind of weird doing it. Um, and so I didn't really say anything, you know. Um, and, and so I was 13, and I get on the plane, and I'm trying to just keep a low profile. And I'm, you know, I'm seated next to what could be the most annoying woman I've ever met, um, who just complained the entire flight about how hot it was, how cold it was, how late it was, if we get there early, what's going to happen, people waiting for her, they're not going to be there yet. And just everything was a complaint. Well, then she got the lunch that they served, if you want to call it food, and um, she, uh, she bit into the chicken and broke her tooth. Uh, true story. And then now this just takes the whole complaining to another level. Airplane security has to come over and get her statement. And then they say, now, sir, you were a witness to this. And we need you to tell us what happened. And I said, well, I mean, it was pretty fairly simple. She bit down, the tooth cracked, the chicken didn't. That's pretty much how it went. And uh, they said, okay, that's great. What's your name so we can have it for the official record? It's uh, my Frank was... Is that your first? That's my last name. Uh, what's your first name? It's uh, Alberto. Uh, what is it? It's Alberto. Uh, what is it? Uh, it's Alberto Frankis. Uh, anyway, so uh, I, to this day, my uncle was on that plane. Uh, so, <coughs> but here's the whole thing. A witness simply testifies of what they've seen. And he says, hey, they say what they've seen, they say what they've experienced, and this is what the Bible does according to 1 John. The Bible is, is a witness. That we are children of God because our lives reflect Jesus. And, and verse 13 is the promise that we can know that we have eternal life. Do you know that this is one of the things that I see Christians struggle with so often? That are you a Christian? Do you have eternal life? Well, you know, I hope so. I mean, I hope so. I mean, is it, the, the, being a Christian is not like playing lotto. You know, well, are, so are you? Well, you know, got my fingers crossed. You know, no, no, no. That, that's, there is a promise there, there's, there, there's a testimony. There's a witness that's given to us that if we really are believers, we can be confident and sure that we have eternal life. And here's the thing. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I got a knock on the door on Saturday morning by some guys that were coming, telling me about, you know, Jehovah's kingdom that was coming and all that. And uh, so I, uh, unlike most Christians, um, you know, who hide in the laundry room, um, if you don't do anything, they'll leave. Uh, you know... Um, <clears throat> and uh, it reminds me of a story of a pastor uh, who, knock, who knocked on the door of someone who had visited his church. He knocked on the door, and then um, they, uh, he, the, no one answered, and so he left uh, an, an, uh, his card, and he wrote, you know, Revelation 3.20. You know, I stand at the door and knock if anyone opens the door. He left that on the door. Well, a few days later, he gets a, a card in the mail from the house, and he gets the card uh, his business card back. 
But the business card had written Genesis 3.8, which is, I heard you in the garden and I was naked and so I hid myself. Um, and uh, so, so anyway, <laughs> uh, Bible jokes. Uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> that's an old one, by the way. Um, so anyway, so this guy knocks on my door and he's telling me about the kingdom and all that. And he wants to do like Bible ping pong. And you say this verse says, and I say this verse says, this, and you can do that for an hour. And I said, Hey, why don't we get down to the brass tacks of it? So let's ask the question that the rich young ruler asked. He said to Jesus, good teacher, how might I inherit eternal life? And so I said, so that's my question. You're, you're announcing the kingdom. That's great. Can you tell me how do I inherit eternal life? And he said, well, you know, we go knocking door to door. We're going to knock on every door in this neighborhood. And I said, so if I knock on all the doors and share about the kingdom, that's how I inherit eternal life. He says, well, not exactly. I said, okay, so I'm going to ask again. And I said, you know, for, I'm not trying to be pushy or anything. I just want, I really want to know an answer to the question. I said, how do I inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know, I'm trying to be a good husband and a good father. And I said, man, me too. But is that how you inherit eternal life? Is like being a good husband and a good dad. And he says, well, you know, not exactly. I said, well, let me just ask the question again. I mean, how do I inherit eternal life? And, uh, and, he, and, and he's, well, you know, I try to do the right thing and I try to be fair and honest. And I said, so, you know, following the golden rule, is that how you inherit eternal life? Well, not exactly. I said, listen, how do I inherit eternal life? I mean, it seems like this is the whole ball of wax, right? And he says, you know, I don't know. Do you know? Well, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and I said this, and I brought him to this verse. I brought him to 1 John 5, 13. These things I've written to you, that you who, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Can I tell you something? That you don't have to walk around unsure that you're a Christian. You don't have to walk around defeated like, boy, I wonder if I'm okay with God. Verse 13 says this. These things I've written to you who believe. We talked about that word believe last time if you were here. That believe is this idea of clinging to, holding on to, grabbing on to something for dear life. And if, you've, and if you're grabbing hold of this for dear life, if you're trusting in Jesus and nothing else, here's what you can know. That you can know and have confidence that you're saved and secure in Jesus. You see, and what I love is that Jesus, that eternal life isn't just going to heaven after you die. That's part of it. But it's more than that. Listen to what Jesus, how he, what he says in John 17 as he's praying to the Father. He says, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here's what eternal life is. It's knowing God. And that's what we will spend eternity doing is learning more about who God is. You see, sometimes as Christians, we think, well, you know, eternal life starts like after I die. No, no, eternal life starts right now. You are living an eternal life with God starting right this moment. That not only lasts this lifetime, but goes on through into eternity. That your whole life, eternity will be spent understanding who God is. The riches and the depths of his grace and love. And listen, if you say, man, but I want to be sure that I'm saved. I want to be sure that I'm going to heaven. Then here's what the Bible would say in 2 Corinthians. It would say, test yourself. In your notes, it says this. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you failed the test 
of genuine faith. You see, we can know what God is like. We can know that we're saved. We can know something else too. Look at verse 14. He says this. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So we can know who God is. We can know that we're saved. We can know, number three, that God hears our prayers. We can know that. And there are times that we don't feel like, man, is God really listening? Are my prayers just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back? Man, what does it take to really know um, and really understand and, and really feel like God is hearing us? Do I have to be inside or do, is it better outside? Do I have to be kneeling down or standing up? Should my hands be raised or my hands be folded? Should my eyes be open or closed? Should I, I be in the forest or should I be in a clearing? Should I be on asphalt? Should I be on grass? I just need to know what the right thing is. And sometimes we will second guess ourselves to death, wondering. And here's the reason is because we sometimes feel like God's moving a little too slow for our timetable. But the promise that John gives us is that here's what you can know. Is that if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's a powerful promise. But you know what the cool thing is? Is that even if we ask something that's not according to his will, you know what God does? He kind of tweaks the prayer. He redirects it. Because listen to what the Bible says. I put it in your notes in Hebrews 7. It says, um, because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save all those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Isn't that a cool thing that if we sometimes we don't even know the right thing to pray the Bible says that in Romans chapter 8, that sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so the Spirit will intercede for us. In this passage, it says that Jesus himself intercedes for us on behalf of the Father. So even if we ask something that's like not the right thing, and we'll say, oh God, please do this for me. And Jesus will say, yeah, that's not what he wants. What? No, 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 that's what I really want. Yeah, he says he doesn't want that. You know, it just doesn't, you know. And so you got this young guy and he's like, oh God, I want you to send me a bunch of money because I really need it. And, um, and, and then we're, that's what we're praying. God, I just want to wake up and there just be a pile of money under my pillow. It's like, if you could just be like the tooth fairy, except you're like the money fairy with me and just leave me like, you know, you know, we, you know, we, we accept the kind that, that jingles, but we prefer the kind that folds, um, you know, some cash and, uh, that's what I need. And then, you know, so we're praying that and here's, and then Jesus reinterprets that. He says he doesn't want free money. He says he wants, hold on, a job. That's what he wants. He says he wants a job and he says, make it a real tough one. So he gets a good work ethic out of it. Um, and, and is it, what, no, that's not what I prayed. Yo, that, that, but that's what you need. And, uh, <coughs> You know, oh God, I want to marry her. Father, he says he doesn't want to marry her. Well, no, no, yes, no, he doesn't. Says, close that door completely. Have her move to another country. Uh, get her out of my life. And um, I'm telling you, I, 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 I've shared this before, but I, I dated this, this girl in high school. Um, and I was head over heels for her. And uh, she dumped me. And, uh, and then, um, and I, I wasn't even a Christian, but I was praying that I would get her back. And uh, it didn't work out, and I was so upset about it for a while. And, and, uh, and then, um, shortly after that, I met Carrie, my wife. And uh, we were in, this was about, and that was about two years later, that uh, I was in, we were in a mall. And uh, I'm walking through the mall, we walk into the store, and sure enough, that girl is there that I had dated. And, 
And I just pray, you know, because that girl was, was hot in high school. And, uh, and then I saw her like a couple years later, and things had changed. <laughs> things had made a turn for the worse. And, uh, and I saw her, and inside I was like, testify, hallelujah. <laughs> Woo, God, I dodged a bullet. Because um, that's rough. And, uh, and man, and I seriously, I thank God for reinterpreting that prayer. I rejoice in the reinterpreting of that prayer because... Woo! And uh, that was serious. Um, and so, and that's the promise. It's that we can have confidence in our relationship with God. And here's why. That we can't screw things up by asking for the wrong thing. Because you and I have the propensity for that. We don't have all full knowledge. And that's why the Bible says sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. But we're praying for something. We're praying for the wrong thing. And here's the promise. The promise is here's the deal. You just can't mess it up. Because even if you pray for the wrong thing, the Spirit, the Son, they're going to reinterpret that to get us to pray for the right thing so that God can do the thing that He actually wants to do in your life and in mine. That's the promise. But look what happens next um, in, in this passage in verse 16. And verse 16 and 17 are probably the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret. And here's why, as I read them. Uh, here's what it says. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask... And he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. Well, that's clear. And uh, so now let me finish and then we'll explain that. Uh, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing that I want to tell you. The things that we can know. We can know who God is. We can know um, that our prayers are heard. We can know that Jesus saves us and we can know how serious sin is. We can know how serious it is. This is, as I said, it's one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament uh, to understand. And so what we, to really understand it, we, we have to build a little bit. And so if, if, you'll, um, if you'll indulge me, if we can just kind of build into this interpretation and this understanding of these passages, which are a bit difficult... Um, he talks about a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. There is a sense that all sin leads to death. So let's kind of establish that groundwork. Um, when, when our original parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, death entered the world through sin. And so um, that's, where death, that's where death comes from. Death, you know, the, 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 he who eats of this tree will surely die. That's where it begins. So death comes because of disobedience. Death comes because of sin. But also, um, and then also there is sin that isn't forgiven that leads to separation from God eternally. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, it says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So John categorizes two types of sin here. Sin leading to death, sin not leading to death. The sin leading to death is not one particular sin. Um, because if it was a particular sin, I'm sure he would have um, identified it. But because he doesn't identify it and he speaks about it in a way that those who he's writing to would already have an understanding of what it is that he's saying. 
um, those of us not being there and we're many you know, centuries removed, we have to kind of extrapolate a little bit and understand what he's saying. But it isn't one particular sin. It's an attitude of unrepentance. It's the prolonged, repeated, unrepentant, grievous sin in the life of a Christian. Notice I said in the life of a Christian. This book is written to Christians. So it's not like he's saying, well, you know, those, those non-Christians, they're such bad people and they commit all these grievous sins. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who love the Lord. But there is, in the life of a person even who loves the Lord, a person who is a believer, there can be prolonged, repeated, unrepentant, grievous sin that is so serious that God says, here's the deal. I'm just going to take you to heaven right now. Because if I leave you on earth for any longer, you're going to begin to trample the name of my son underfoot. That's what happened in the book of Acts. In fact, I, I put the passage there. For you, listen to what it says in Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? So why have you conceived this thing in your heart and you have lied not to men, but to God? And Ananias, when he heard these words, fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now, I want you to understand what happens in this in this story. In the verses previous to this, people, because they saw great need in the church and in the people in the church, they were selling things, possessions, land. They were giving them to the apostles, and then the apostles were distributing them to those who had need. And what happens is, is that as, he, as they do that, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, say, wow, look at like the prestige of, and, the, and the, the real dedication of those who are selling all this stuff. We should sell a piece of land and give it to the apostles too. They didn't have to do it, but they decided to do it. But here's what happened, is that they, um, they take it, but then after they sold it, they're like, well, you know, we don't need to give all of it, but we could say we gave all of it. So why don't we do that? Because then people are really going to think we're super spiritual. And you'll be like, oh, well, yeah, you know, no big deal. But, you know, you should probably be more like us. And, uh, you know, because we're like, you know, pretty awesome. Thank the Lord. And, uh, and so we could do that. And then, that, you know, who else? Who would be any, other, any the wiser? So they take part of it, part of the money, keep part of it. And they give part of it. But they said the key is not that they gave part. The key is they gave part and said that they gave all. And that's the thing that Peter now looks at them and says, why has Satan so filled your heart that you're going to lie about this? I mean, wasn't this land yours to begin with? And after you sold it, wasn't it yours to, to, to end with? So why did you have to say that you gave all when you really only gave part? Why don't you just say you gave part and everybody would rejoice? But see, there's this pride and hypocrisy that's happening in you. And this is the thing that has to stop because you're grieving the spirit of God. And when Ananias hears these words, you know what happens? Woo! Boom! Drops dead. In the rest of the story, I didn't put it in your notes, but in the rest of the story, his wife comes in later. She doesn't even know what happened. And she's like, hey, guys, how's it going? And they're like, hey, you know that land you sold? That's pretty cool. Uh, did you sell it for this much? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, your husband said you sold it for that much. And the guys who are burying him, they just came back. What? Woo! She drops dead now, too. Uh, you know, so number one, you know, be careful when the offering comes around. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but apparently, <laughs> I, I really am kidding. <clears throat> but apparently there was hypocrisy when it came to this offering and God had just had enough of it. They tried to pull some shenanigans and God just took them out. Listen, it doesn't mean that they didn't love the Lord. It doesn't mean that they weren't saved. It simply means that this sin was one that God was not going to allow to continue. And so what happened? Their lives were cut short because there was a sin that leads to death. This is the very thing that happened in Corinth. Let me read it to you in in, in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many asleep. Let me explain what's happening here. There is a group of people in the, in the church at Corinth who were excited about communion because they're, man, the food's going to come out, the bread, that's going to be awesome. And then the wine. And they were drinking so much wine at communion that they were getting drunk. And they're like, this is the best church service ever. You know, when Skinner coming out, you know. And so they're, they're getting crazy. They're drinking this wine. They're getting sloshed on communion. Right? I mean, like, what is wrong with you? You're getting drunk off communion. That's a lot of little cups, you know. You know, he's like shotgunning these things. And, uh, and then, you know, what ha- and here's what happens. He says that many here are weak. Many are sick, and some of you have dropped dead. So, like, examine yourself. What are you doing? And this is the sin that le- uh, uh, just it, it became a sin that leads to death. Which all the times that these people didn't know the Lord, they did know the Lord, and God just said, "You know what? Your life is going to get cut short. I'm taking you to heaven because this just can't continue." But there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. This is the sin that everybody struggles with. Right? None of, I, I, when, when we talk about this stuff, it's not that God is saying we've got to be perfect. None of us are perfect. All of us struggle. All of us sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And this is where John, John says that we should pray for each other. Because with prayer and confession comes forgiveness and life. But you know what I think the, the important thing is? Is that sometimes we forget. We forget about the holiness of God. We forget that, can I tell you this? Jesus is not our homeboy. Contrary to what the shirts might say. That, you know, uh, he, he's not winking at sin like it's no big deal. Listen, God is holy. And the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And we need to remember that the God who saved us, the God who loves us, the God who forgave us and gave us life and peace is also the God that hates sin so much that he sent his son to die for us and that sin cost Jesus his life. That's why winking at sin or thinking it's no big deal is an affront to God. God is holy. And he calls us to live a holy life. None of us are perfect. But God calls us in that our lives should be being transformed. We should be changing to become more like Jesus. The Bible says in in Hebrews chapter 12, pursue peace with all people. In holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Because if you don't know that God is holy, then you don't know God. That's why the final verses in 1 John, in 18 through 20, it's all about knowing God. 
He says, and we know whoever is born of God does not sin, sin continually. We know that we're of God. We know that the Son of God has come. And we know that Him who is true in His Son, Jesus. And this, is, this whole idea that we can know Him, we can know the kind of life that He wants us to live, that know the way that He wants us to go. In the book of Genesis, chapter 35, there's a uh, story that's told of uh, Jacob and his family where God speaks to Jacob and he says, I want you to return to Bethel. Bethel is a word in Hebrew. It's a town. But Bethel um, was, uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's two words in Hebrew, Beth and El. It's the house of God. And he's telling him, I want you to go back to this place. This is the place that God first appeared to him, the place that God first spoke to him. And God was calling Jacob and his family to return to this place, to return to the place where it all began. But before going back, Jacob says to his family, he says, hey, if we're going to go back to the house of God, we have to get rid of the idols in our lives. There are idols that we've collected. There's idols that we've believed. There's idols that we've held on to. And we have to get rid of them. Get rid of the false gods that we're worshiping and embrace the true and living God. And what did they do? The Bible says that they found a tree. And they took all of the idols that they had and they buried them under the tree. The tree throughout the Bible is indicative of the cross because it's a picture of the cross. That we can come to the cross and actually bury the idols. Get rid of the idols. Let go of the idols. Release the idols. And friends, I'm not just talking about statues and trinkets. While it would include that as well. Idols can also include an attitude. It can include actions. It can include worshiping false gods of greed, false gods of lust, false gods of envy and jealousy and anger. And you know, the thing about false gods is here's what they do. They demand everything from us, but they never deliver on what they said they would do. We're our God, the true and living God. He does something different. He gives us everything up front. He says, hey, here's what I've done for you. I sent my son to die for you. And as you embrace me and believe in me, here's what happens. It's forgiveness and peace and eternal life and hope and mercy and grace and a transformation of your life and taking you from one track from miry clay and setting your feet upon a rock. It's changing everything. It's setting you free because you're not bound anymore. You're not stuck anymore. Now I'm giving you something that you never thought was possible with an idol. An idol keeps us stuck and it keeps us bound. But here's what God says, I'm going to give you freedom. But we have to be willing to release the one, the idols, and embrace the other. The true and living God who wants to change us and transform us and work in us. That's where we are. That's the moment that we have. And listen, in a moment we're going to pray. And as we do... Um, I want to give you an opportunity. Remember, this message is written to Christians. And while it certainly can apply to those who aren't, this message is written to those of us who are believers. And maybe today is the day for those of us to just release an idol, release something else that we've worshipped and, and let it go and say, God, I'm embracing you. I'm coming back to you, the true and living God. Let's pray together. And Lord, I want to thank you Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you want to transform our lives. Thank you that you don't leave us. 
with our idols in our hands, in our head or our heart, but instead you come to us inviting the promise of being free, the promise of knowing you and walking in that, being sure that we're saved, being sure that we know you, being sure that you hear us. So God, today, do a work in us. Listen, with every head bowed, with every eye closed as we're praying together, if you're here and you say, listen, pastor, I'm a believer, but I have an idol that I've been worshiping, a statue, a trinket, an attitude, an emotion, something that has diverted me from God, then I want to pray for you. I want to lead you in a prayer. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm just going to ask that you simply stand where you are so I can pray for you. This is your time. It's your moment. God bless you. God bless you. You say, this is, this is my moment. I need to, re- just like Jacob and his family, I need to release the idols and go back to Bethel, the house of God. Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. And you want to come to know him today. Maybe you're far from God. And you say, I, I, want, I want to know him. This God that you talk about, I want him to forgive me. I want him to fill my life with joy and peace like he promises. If that's you, then you stand up as well. This is your moment. But today is the day that we release the idols. The day that we release the false gods that we've worshipped. That we release all the stuff that has demanded everything of us. And we embrace. We embrace the God who loves us, the God who died for us, the God who has shown us how much he loves us. One last moment. We're going to pray. Lord, I thank you for every person who has stood to their feet because God, you very publicly died for us prove to us what love is and God for all of us we want to release the idols we want to release the false gods we we let go of all of those things those attitudes and actions that draw us away from you I pray for every person who's standing and Lord I ask that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit fill them with your love fill them with the knowledge and understanding of who you really are God help them to walk away from those idols to embrace you. May you continue to do a work in them starting this day as we continue all of our days until the day we see you face to face. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen.